Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shaul. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Latushim, and Limam. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. You know, nothing stays the same. Not in our personal lives, not in the lives of people around us. You get older, you go through different seasons. You are young and you have that childhood age, then you have your transitioning into young adulthood and a collegiate age, and then that post-collegiate or university age, as they tend to say in most countries, other countries. And then you start that life and you move toward 30, and then you got that 30 to 40 clip where most people have kids. Not always, but it varies, you know, it just is what it is. And then you kind of adjust in the 40s and 50s where things are moving along, and then you, you move right in on 60, and you're moving toward grandkids, and then you watch your grandkids grow up, and you're moving to eternity. At least in our timeline, that's how it works. Obviously, Abraham, in a post-flood world, just about 500 years removed from the, gar- um, the primeval world, shortly after the Ice Age, here's Abraham, and he's living 175 years. Now, after him, people really drop off in their timeline. Of course, his forefathers, like Noah, lived much longer than this, of course, 900 years. But that post-flood world is changing how long people live, how the molecular structure of the body works in a, in a world of different seasons that did not exist before the flood. But he still has a long run. I mean, 175 years, that's two lifetimes. That's two full lifetimes and some change as we know it, right? Because 80 and 80 is 160. So if you live to be 80 two times around, that's what it'd be like. But we also know he considered himself old at 100 when Isaac was born. So these next 75 years, it's not like he got to be young again. He just was still kind of old, but not as old as we think of it. But he still lived a long time. He basically lived the equivalent of two full lives as we understand it. And he made choices. He lost his wife. Remember, we pointed this out three weeks ago. The first weeping in the Bible is Abraham weeping for the loss of his wife. And you think how challenging that would be to go forward without his wife. In Hebrews 11, he really is the father of faith. And we're affirmed that in other New Testament books. That he's the father of faith. God made the covenant with him specifically to give us the nation of Israel who would give us Jesus Christ the Messiah. That Abrahamic covenant led to the Mosaic covenant, led to the new covenant. And Abraham's that, that father of faith. And there in Hebrews 11, we're told that by faith he obeyed God. He and his wife Sarah when they went to the promised land from modern Iraq to modern Israel. And then... We're also told he was tested in his faith in Hebrews 11, but we're also told Sarah is a woman of faith and that she counted him faithful who promised to do that which was impossible for her to do on her own. So the first woman listed for us as a great woman of faith in Hebrews 11 and in the Bible, 
that standout woman early on for us is Sarah. So not only was she his wife, she was an amazing wife. And even though we get her shortcomings in the stories of her life, in the details in Genesis, part of this, she, the summary of her life is she was a woman of faith, she was a godly woman, and she rejoiced in the Lord. So Abraham has lost this, not only his good friend, the passionate love of his youth in his life, his wife, but he lost a godly woman who was his wife. That's a, you can't replace Sarah. And of course, we can't replace any of you. We can't replace any of you. But things happen in life. People leave, people get divorced, people die. People are widowed twice. You just have to choose to live and God gives us a self-determination to determine how we want to live. And when I look at Abraham marrying Keturah and having all these children, you think, you might at first think, like, wow, like, what's that all about? Like, what's that like? Like, shouldn't you just stay single because how do you ever replace Sarah? You never replace Sarah. Keturah is not about replacing Sarah. Keturah is about having companionship and friendship and love in the second half of life. And that's a choice that God allows us to do and to have. We each get to choose how we're going to live our life. If we want to love and be loved and receive love, we make those choices. So if you want to be single and choose to be single, you can be single. You can't force someone to love you and marry you. We know that. But if you're a widower, like Abraham was, and you want to remarry, good for you. It's your life. Those are your choices. Like David said when he lost his son, I'll go to him, but he's not coming back to us. And no one's coming back. And in heaven, we're all made like angels, we're told by Jesus himself. And Abraham made that choice. There, when I was in Russia last week, in Siberia, we went to a small village where it's a town. It's it's a modern town. It's got a gas station mini mart that looks like ours. It's just 12 below and a lot of snow. But it looks like ours. It, it, you'd almost think you're in Minnesota or something. And we were in this home where a Bible study was taking place. And this amazing woman of the native tribes was there. And I went around her house. She had all kinds of indoor plants. So I, I commented on her plants. And she spoke her native dialect, and she spoke Russian as well. And I was just seeing how beautiful it was. And it was very colorful, and it was very humble, but it was very nice. It was very warm. It is a really neat house filled with love. And she had a lot of color, and there was this wall hanging with all these family photos. And on that family photo, one really got my attention. He looked like Mongolian or Nepali of that side of the Ural Mountains, and he had the, the Russian hat on with the hammer and sickle. So it was like the type of hat they wore in the 70s and the 80s. And I knew that she was a, a widow. And so I presumed this was her husband. I was right. But it was afterwards I found out the story that he was killed in the Afghan war. He was a soldier and he died in the Afghan war. They, they, they lost a lot. Of, they fought a lot of wars recently. I'm sure you know that. The Chechenian wars, two of them. The Afghan war. They've, they've had their share of things that, that they've gotten involved in is just like America has. But this woman's husband went away. 
for Mother Russia, and he died. He was killed in the Afghan war. That's pretty similar to some of our stories, right? Then her second husband died of TB. A lot of people die of tuberculosis in Russia. I stayed with a pastor who's also a doctor, a lieutenant colonel retired. And he practices medicine in Nizindigorov. And he works with tuberculosis patients. It pays a little more, but the risk is much higher. It's a different world. But there in that living room, that woman, there were less people gathered than normal that night. Normally there's a few people that, you know, the connections from the people of the village and that they, they fish on the river and they follow the reindeer herds. That's what they do. They're basically nomadic, but they're based, but they roam with the herds and this stuff. They use jet skis. Alcohol is a big issue. People drowned all the time driving jet skis when they shouldn't be on thin ice. It's, it's problematic. We're there, and all of a sudden she wanted to start, she wanted to sing. She knew I was a visiting American who's a Christian, and she wanted to sing a praise song to the Lord for us. She had a journal of praise songs that she sings to the Lord, like we have journals. Many of you have journals. I have a journal. And she started to sing this praise song in her native dialect to the Lord, praising Jesus. This woman lost her first husband. And in Russia, your husband's your provider, your primary provider. Her first husband in the Afghan war, her second husband to tuberculosis. But what really got my attention was when we left, Dave Markey told me every single person on that wall has passed and died. Her entire family's gone. The entire family. There is a grandson, but not really a grandson. It's like a third cousin. And he had that Indian indigenous look. He was working the soundboard at the Baptist church in Salicard an hour away that I got some pictures with him and I shared my story with him. And he's related, but like multiple times removed. That's her closest relative. And I bring this back to Abraham and Kentura because when everyone you know has died and you love Jesus, you'll find out how strong your faith is. And you self-determine how you're going to go forward in life. If you're going to wake up and sing praise songs to the Lord in your language and you're going to choose to keep living and you're going to open your home for believers and foreigners to come and share the gospel and the word of God in your home. And by the way, you're not very afraid of what the government's going to do to you either. Because what can they take from you that you haven't already given to the Lord? You'll see pictures of her, and you'll see video of her. God had me sit there and listen to her sing a praise song for three minutes in her language to the Lord, right next to me. She wanted me to hear her praising the Lord and her dialect. And knowing what I already knew prior to that and what I learned after that made it that much more special. You weep when you bury Sarah, but there is a tomorrow and you wake up with tomorrow and you wake up with Jesus Christ with tomorrow and you choose self-determined to go forward and live the life of faith and enjoy the life that you have and love the people that are around you, whoever they are in your neighborhood, in your community, 
and even it's your extended family all the way over here. And by the way, that grandson, sort of twice removed, whatever, he lost his mom, his grandmother, and everybody as well. So that's the family that you have. And you choose to go forward and you choose to live. And what I like about Abraham and Keturah is Abraham chose to live and he chose to go forward and he chose and decided that he still had love to give and he didn't want to be alone and he wanted the companionship. He wanted the love. He wanted the friendship. He wanted the romance. He wanted the intimacy and God gave him all of that and he lived a rich, full life. And we have to think about Keturah for a minute because how do you like to be the one marrying Abraham after Sarah's died? You talk about trying to fill big shoes. How do you replace Sarah? But Keturah is in the Bible. And we don't read anything about her being a great woman of God. We don't read anything about her not being a woman of God. But you know, she is married to the man of God for decades and produced a lot of children. And together, as a husband and a wife, they watch those kids grow up. And Abraham loved those children. You know, Abraham loved Ishmael. He loved Isaac, and he loved his children through Keturah. Your heart doesn't get cut up in pieces. Your heart expands. That's what men and women of faith do when they go forward in faith from heartache and sorrow. Their heart just keeps expanding with love for whoever's closest to them to receive it. That's how we want to live life. Because I got pictures in my house, too. I got pictures in my house. You have pictures in your house of loved ones. You have pictures too. Can you imagine everyone in those pictures that you love not being alive this day? Would you sing a praise song to the Lord in your language? Would you choose to go forward? Would you choose to be a part of the future? of a future generation for Jesus Christ. I would hope so. I certainly determine and purpose in my heart. So many lessons to learn on a trip like this. Note to self. Like Job said, though he slay me, I will yet praise him. Yeah, Mary Keturah. Eat, drink, have children, enjoy life, and keep serving the Lord. We read on verse 7. After Abraham sent those sons away, he gave them gifts, but he knew the distinction of what God had for Isaac being different than the rest of them. He didn't get blurry on how the finish looked. He stayed true to what he was called to do, but he expanded his heart with love by his own self-determination and choices while staying on point with the purposes of God. Verse 7, this is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years. And he was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt in Bir Lahai Roi. Now this brings up a similar point but slightly different. If it's difficult to replace the void after Sarah's passed away, and by the way, if you're Keturah, you would never try and be Sarah. Be Keturah, right? Be Keturah. God didn't make you to be Sarah. He made you to be Keturah. Be Keturah. 
and be the best Keturah. Well, now Abraham's passed away. Two full lifetimes, as we understand them, he steps into eternity. He's buried with his original wife, Sarah, in the cave at Machpelah. And then suddenly now there's Isaac, the son of promise. There's Ishmael, the son of the flesh, through Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant. There's other sons that have gone to the east toward modern Iran and all those places that when you go east, you'll start hitting them. And there they are. And Abraham's not there. Just yesterday while speaking, teaching a Bible study in the port of Los Angeles, someone who I taught through the Bible college almost two decades ago was commenting on how different it was when Steve Mays went to be with the Lord and Jeff Gill came in to replace him as the pastor at Calvary Chapel South Bay. What a big change that was for the church. But how wonderful it's been and how much everyone loves Jeff Gill, who my wife and I have known since the 80s because he was on staff with us at Calvary Coast and Mace with Brian Broderson in 88, 89, and 90. But then we got to Pastor Chuck. And just five years later, how, how hard it is to replace Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement. Now, having just been in Russia at a Calvary Chapel pastor's conference with 80% or more of the Calvary Chapel pastors in Russia being there and seeing the movement 30 years into it as it's been in Russia, thinking of the legacy of George Bryson going there in the early 90s and others with him and how they sowed, and Chuck gave the green light and encouraged all the Calvary pastors to go. Jeff Johnson went, all these guys went two decades ago, a decade ago. Some have gone on a regular basis. But to be at that pastor's conference with really, maybe you'll see some photos of it, 200 people, 250. And to see the Calvary Chapel movement represented there in Russia into a second generation now. See teenagers there. And the children coming in, singing praise songs, you'll see it. Something to look forward to. And to hear some references to Pastor Chuck. But to see how the church has been sustained by the Lord, not Pastor Chuck, was what really spoke to me. Because, of course, having been on staff with Pastor Chuck Smith, and by the way, having been on staff with Pastor Chuck Smith made me legendary for conversation one-on-one in Russia. No one cared about worship generation or pro surfing or Olympic surfing. Well, kids, hey, listen, Russia is such a different world. They didn't even know the shaka. I taught Russian teenagers in Siberia the shaka. <laughs> That's pretty cool. But they, they wanted to hear maybe something I learned by serving with Pastor Chuck Smith. And they sang some of the older Calvary songs, of course, in Russian. It's pretty cool. But what I thought about is how when that door opened up for the gospel to go to Russia, when the Iron Curtain came down and the Berlin Wall came down literally, and then the Iron Curtain figuratively over Eastern Europe and Russia, how those Calvary Chapel pastors, along with pastors from many different movements, even cult groups and healthy evangelical groups went there. And now 30 years later, you see, specifically for the banner that we fly under the cross, the, we all fly under the flag of the cross. 
And then it's almost like when you put the 12 tribes of Israel in order, they had a banner for their tribe. And I always feel like that Calvary dove is flying underneath the cross, you know. There it is, the Calvary dove. You know, so we're lining up in order when the horns are being sounded. That's what I feel like. So there I am looking at this. And I was reminded that God is bigger than one person. And we can never forget that. God is bigger than one person. Always has been, always will be. When you're a pastor and you're gone from the church, you think, oh, it's an alternative reality too. Like when you're in that far on the other side of the planet, exact 12 hours different, like it couldn't be more opposite. You're like, well, if they've got it covered, I'm gone. They've got it covered. If they don't, they don't. It's like practicing for me being in eternity. It's what it's like. When I was with Billy Rutledge and he's, of course, got the cancer and he was there and I'm like, how's the church in Hatteras? And he's like, that's for them to figure out. They're practicing for when I'm gone. Because the church is bigger than one person. And Abraham was gone. There's a finality when you put Abraham in the grave. There's something very final about putting the body of Abraham in the cave at Machpelah. It's very final. There's something about when you put a body in the grave that's very final. There's something powerful about a paddle out and surfing where all the surfers start splashing the water and you might scatter someone's remains in the ocean. John Jackson recently sent me the video of Pastor Chuck's paddle out with all the pastors in the water, Raw Reese, Jeff Johnson splashing the water, hundreds of people. It just it was an amazing experience. But it's not as powerful as when you put a body in the grave. When you put a body in the grave, it's a very powerful moment that speaks to the deepest recesses of a human soul. They're gone, but you're here. What's going to happen now? Even at the pastor's conference in July in Diamond Bar with Pastor Raul Reese's church, five years later, the Calvary pastor's like, okay, we've kind of adjusted to the shock of Pastor Chuck being gone. And we're a family. We are who we are. And we're going forward. And I think everyone kind of settled into it. It's a good thing. But what I like about this passage is it tells us that God blessed Isaac. God blessed Isaac. God doesn't stop working just because someone great's gone. Billy Graham's gone, and Franklin Graham's packing shoeboxes, and so are we. D.L. Moody's gone. Fanny Crosby's gone. They come and they go. They come and they go. We come and we go, and God's faithful. Like I said prior to this Bible study, in every generation. And we shouldn't be moved because someone moves on. There in the book of Acts, in chapter 8, after Stephen dies, in chapter 8, verse 4, it says, devout men lamented the death of Stephen. And it's good to lament godly people, godly men and women, when they move on. Earth's loss and heaven's gain should be something that's worth lamenting. But it doesn't change that the Spirit of God doesn't hover upon someone new in a fresh way to do a fresh work in a new way, consistent with the character of God. That's what he does. And we read here that God blessed Isaac. The blessings passed on to Isaac. All that God had done in Abraham's life was for Abraham in and through him in his generation. But as his body goes in the grave, the Holy Spirit tells us the narrative here that now God is blessing Isaac. The blessings have passed on. 
God is blessing Isaac as they testified yesterday. All these people from Calvary Chapel South Bay who work in the port of Los Angeles and San Pedro there as they testified of the wonderful things that God's doing in Calvary Chapel South Bay through our good friend Jeff Gill. It just reminds us that the blessings pass on. Steve Mays is with the Lord. Chuck is with the Lord. Someday I'll be with the Lord. You'll be with the Lord. But the blessings are there for the next generation. They're there to be apprehended. So our task is to raise up the next generation. Our task is to prepare the next generation. Not to pamper, but to prepare that they can go beyond anything that we could have ever done. And that's what faith would see. People often make the mistake to think that Abraham to Isaac is a regression. I've been thinking a lot about it. I don't think it's a regression. I think it's a progression. Because he's the son of promise, and we're moving closer to Jesus Christ coming in this next generation in the life of Isaac. And I've heard people say in the past, well, Abraham built all these altars. Isaac only built one altar, right? But is Isaac in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? Yes. Was he of adult age in his dad offering him up to the Lord? More than likely. God knows how to build his church. And the blessings pass on. So we lament godly men, godly women, earth's loss, heaven's gain, but we should never lose perspective that there's a fresh work of the Holy Spirit right in front of us for those who are willing to be used by the Lord and are willing to believe in him to do that work. After the death of Abraham, that God blessed his son Isaac. How important is that verse? Now, there are subsequent generations that train wreck the frugality and the fruit of a previous generation. No one's saying that's not true. Solomon had gold shields. Rehoboam had bronze shields. And he was so scared that the Egyptians would take him away, he hit him every night. That was a regression. But we don't have to let that be a regression in our life or in our ministries. And as a parent, I've said this for years to my children, I want my children, my desires for my children to so excel in the Lord, no one even remember who I am or what I did because of the things that God did through the lives of my children. If it weren't for Hudson Taylor, we might be more inclined to remember his dad, the pastor, just a faithful pastor in rural England. But then again, or his mother, the wife of a pastor who prayed for her son to walk with the Lord. Progression, expansion, the blessings passed on. And even as God told Moses it was time to come home, he told Moses, now pronounce the blessings on Joshua. And that's how it works. And we need to be reminded of that in our own lives, in whatever capacity this would apply to you. Now we read on. Now this is the genealogy, verse 12 of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael. By their names, according to their generations, the firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, and Keter, Abiel, Mibsam, Misham, Duma, Masa, Hadar, Tema, Tetur, Nafish, and Kedeba. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names. By their towns and their settlements, 12 princes according to their nations. 
These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And they dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his generation, all his brethren. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethel, the Syrian of Padamaram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, and he was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. And afterward his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild-mannered man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And now we have the introduction of the next generation of the patriarchs. It's worth noting if you match up years that Abraham would have been alive for 15 years with these grandchildren. Now, he had many grandchildren through Ishmael and uh, Hagar through Ishmael and then through Keturah as well. But the promise, the son of promise, Isaac, had these grandchildren while Abraham was still alive. And then they grew up to live their lives. And we're going to get into the adventures of Jacob and Esau, particularly Jacob, that are fascinating stories. And Genesis is a gift that keeps on giving. It's like such a great book. Actually, yesterday someone said to me, well, I've been listening to the Noah studies. I'm like, oh, we're so past Noah now. The radio is so behind right now. We're so already on Abraham. And now we're moving on to Isaac and Jacob. But here with Isaac, we see something very insightful about him moving on from Ishmael and the end of Ishmael. And God blessed him. God blessed them. But he had a specific plan to redeem the nations and all the world. Remember, in Abraham, all nations, all people would be blessed. And so that's the blessing that runs through Isaac, the son of promise. And so he's married for quite some time, and his wife is unable to have children. He's in the same boat as his father. This is what happened with Abraham and Sarah. But unlike Abraham and Sarah making the compromise with Hagar to come up with another plan, they just wait on the Lord. 20 years is a long time to wait on the Lord. 20 years is a long time to wait on the Lord. But then really, once you've gone through 20 years, you might say that went pretty fast. I was thinking about this. When we first moved to Orange County in 2000, I was a chaplain for Calvary Chapel High School football with Coach Lyle Lansdale. That team went 1-7-2, and two, I believe, or three. We had like three ties that year. It was the craziest season. But I was the chaplain of Calvary Chapel football. I've paid attention to Calvary Chapel High School football for almost 20 years. We've made the CIF playoffs maybe four times in that run, including the year one of the years that Luke played, our son. And last week, Calvary Chapel football won a CIF playoff game. I asked the first time in 20 years that I know that they've won a CIF playoff game. Well, that's 20 years. 
20 years. I'm 58. I was, so that means I was like, just, I just turned, but was about to turn 40 when we came up here. Your worldview at 39, how everything looks, how you see, how you see life at 39, it's like this. Wow, I'm 39. Yeah, I'll be the chaplain for Pastor Chuck's high school football team. Man, 59, you're like, I got to say more than yes, because there's only much gas in the tank. 20 years is 20 years. 20 years is your newborn going away to college and not coming back. 20 years is 20 years. 20 years of waiting on the Lord, that's a wait. See, if you're enjoying the journey, 20 years will go fast. Like when you have little kids, everyone says, enjoy it all, they grow up fast. You're like, of course, that's what everyone says. And then you're the person telling people that. Enjoy it all, they grow up fast. 20 years, when it goes fast, when you're enjoying it. But when you're waiting on the Lord, 20 years is like going slow motion. It just drags on and on. You know, when you're praying for something and you're desiring something for 20 years, that's a hope deferred. That's not just a seasonal deferment. Oh, if only I was married. If only I had my degree. And, like, and if you're in college and something, you, you know, you got X amount of units, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. If you're waiting to have a baby and you're the link to the son of Pro- no pressure there, Rebecca. I mean, no pressure. Like the whole fate of the world is on you. One year, five years, 10 years, start racking up the wedding anniversaries, 15 years. So, well, at least if you're Rebecca, you can say, well, remember your mother? This could take a while. It's going to happen with Rachel, too, the next generation. There's something about waiting on the Lord for a long time that'll teach you a lot of lessons. Let me say that again. There's something about waiting on the Lord for a long time that will teach you a lot of lessons. There's a lot to learn through patience. Through patience. Through patience. In our society, everything goes fast, particularly in Orange County. We want things fast, fast, fast. And somehow we think that God is subject, we can think that God is subject to the Orange County speed of turnover. Of course, when you travel other countries, you realize no one is going nearly as fast as we are. And depending on what countries you go to, things might go slow, slower, and slowest. And that's how life is. And I think particularly living where we live, God might just allow certain things to go a certain way just to offset, kind of handicap us and create circumstances to teach us to wait because it's important in our journey of being molded and shaped like Christ that we learn to wait on the promises of God. If you live in rural Russia... You've got all the time in the world. Winter's coming, winter's gone. Winter's coming, winter's gone. One car, one car. One car, one car. Public transportation, 
public transportation. No one's in a hurry. There's no reason to be in a hurry. Even in war in Russia, they're not in a hurry. The greatest ally Russia's had for centuries is the Russian winter. Us, the French. Napoleon conquered Moscow, but everyone left. And the Russian winter defeated the French army. It was Napoleon's downfall. What defeated Hitler? Well, of course, the massive Soviet Union army, but the Russian winter. 41, 42, 43. It's, it's good to learn to wait on the Lord. It's good to understand that life goes much slower for most people than it does for us when we live here in Southern California. And it's good to slow things down and to have to wait. But I want it now. And you know, it's a good thing for us to teach our children, particularly in Southern California, that just because they want it now doesn't mean they should get it now. Teaching our children patience and wait on the Lord is a valuable attribute that we need to impart to them. When our children were growing up, we called it deferred gratification. The famous study from Stanford University about deferred gratification teaches us that waiting for two marshmallows is better than getting one immediately. That's what they taught kindergartners, one of the most famous studies ever done. Patience, waiting. Rebecca had to wait on the Lord 20 years in the prime of her youth and the flower of her beauty to have that child, those children, through whom the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come through. And in that waiting, her husband we, as we studied the life of Isaac, we just read that God blessed him. But we find in him being blessed is he was a man of prayer. Because the first thing we learn about Isaac here is that he prayed for his wife. There's a lot of prayers in the Bible. There's a lot we read about people who prayed, what they prayed for, what they cried out for. This man prayed for his wife. It doesn't say so much. Well, it says that he pleaded for her because she was barren. But he prayed for her. He prayed for her. Obviously, you could do a whole study on men praying for their wives and interceding for their wives. But he prayed for his wife. So here we see he's a man of prayer, praying for his wife. He learned from his father, give it to the Lord. And they did for two, de- for two decades. They gave it to the Lord while waiting on the Lord. And think how slow time moved for them. They're tent dwellers in Palestine in the year 2000 BC. Think how slow everything went. The goats go out and graze. The goats come back in. You have a little quarrel over these wells. You don't quarrel over those wells. You know what I'm saying? Like, There's not a lot going on in Palestine in 2000 BC when you're waiting on the Lord for children. And yet... Prayed for his wife. And then we see the fruit of that prayer because we read in verse 22 that she cried out to the Lord and the children she conceived. So God answered his prayer for his wife. And then she said, if all is well, why am I like this? And then she inquired of the Lord herself. 
So in her uncertainty, she was brought to a place of inquiring of the Lord, what is going on here? Whatever does this mean? And that's a good thing. We want God to work in our life in a way. We want him to withhold things, to move things, to shuffle things that we would inquire of the Lord. When you're a parent, there are things you want your children to inquire of you of. There's things you want to teach them. There's things you want to share with them. But in certain capacities, they can't receive it. And you can't force it, particularly when they're adults. Do you know, speaking as a parent of of four adult children, I want to maybe make this phone call. I want to send this text or write this email. And then you realize, you know, it's so much better if they come to me and inquire me, Dad, what do you think of this? Or why is this going a certain way? Or how can, what's your take on this? That open door for inquiry from adult children to adult parents is wonderful as opposed to us saying, listen, this is the way it is and that's that. You learn these things as you get older. She inquired of the Lord and the Lord said to her, God's personal. We know that. He's personal with Isaac and he's personal with her. God said to her, so two decades of waiting and you've waited, now you got like a war going on in your, in your womb. You've waited two decades, and now it's like, it's like a tug of war. It's like, wow, hold on now. It's a two for one. That's what it is, two nations. And God not only tells you what's going on, and you know, think about your first pregnancy, ladies, that have been pregnant. If your first pregnancy, you, have, you never know what to measure it by. That's the unique thing about the first pregnancy. And if you have twins, and they're... It's, You've got twins, and they're, they're Esau and Jacob. I mean, come on now. The most famous twins in human history, Esau and Jacob. And she inquired of the Lord, and God said, well, yes, here's the deal. And he tells her what's going on, and he answered her prayers. She's going to be a mom, and she's won the daily double. We've closed out now in verse 29. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field. He was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die, so what is that birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is one of those stories in the Old Testament that the New Testament gives us interpretation on. For there in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told, we're warned about being a profane person like Esau, who for a bowl of stew sold his birthrights. And then when he was remorseful about it, though he sought that birthright back diligently, it was not granted to him. There was no place for Esau to find repentance and restoration of this lost birthright. Wow. Now, as we go forward in the Old Testament, we're going to understand more of the birthright, and I hope to expound on this possibly this Saturday night with this text. But the birthright was so powerful in that culture. And the blessings of the father upon the children was so powerful in that culture. 
In the church, we learn this. In fact, I learned this from John Corson. Blessings on people, like the high priest, you know, pronounced, like Aaron, pronounced the blessings. And what did Pastor Chuck do at Costa Mesa? Every service, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. He'd pronounce the blessings. And there's blessings to be pronounced by spiritual fathers and earthly fathers. When I was saying goodbye to David and Marky's girls when they're being dropped off for school in the dark, nine below, before we were headed for the airport to leave, I just pronounced blessings over his children, daughters of missionaries, amazing girls, hilarious girls. But I have pronounced the blessings. Don't underestimate the birthrights that God has for us figuratively and the blessings he's pronouncing on us and wants to pronounce through us, literally. And I've said this recently. It's not that our words create a reality. God creates reality. And people abuse those promises and the idea of claiming things that God's promised us by abusing them for carnal things with limited concept of God and bad means to an end. But the true claiming of God's promises, the true speaking of God's promises is biblical. Not that we're little gods creating reality, but they speak and declare the truth that we know in our hearts. And as the proverb says, as a man or woman thinketh, so they become. And this birthright was very important. It was very special. It was very precious. You're the grandson of Father Abraham, and you have the birthright, and you know the story of your father, and you sell it for a bowl of beans? Or as it's in Russia, borscht? You give away, you give away everything of the kingdom for one meal. And you say, who would do that? Lots of people. The devil said it best, skin for skin, yea, all that a man has will give to save his life. Lots of people have given up a lot in a moment for their flesh that's cost them dearly where things can't be restored. It's a scary story, the story of Esau and the bowl of beans. It's very scary. It's very sobering. We'll learn more about Esau and the effects of this. And later on, Esau did regret it. And later on, he uses against Jacob saying, you did this and you usurped me. Hey, nobody usurped anything. You gave it away for a bowl of beans and God knows your heart and he knows what you did and why you did it. So the lesson from Esau is to esteem things that should be esteemed and to value that which is holy and recognize it as holy. It's one thing to be legalistic. It's another thing to be carnal. It's important to be in the middle and to, and to love liberty and the law of liberty with love in Jesus' name and the value of holiness and the good things that God has for us. One thing I really enjoyed in Russia was the general overall reverence that the body of Christ has for the Lord Jesus Christ in Russia. It was obvious that they revere the holiness of the Lord and the special things of the Lord. We can get very flippant with those beautiful things of the Lord if we're not careful. And we can trample a foot or lowly esteem or undervalue, underappreciate the glorious and great things of God's character and his grace and mercy and love that he's done for us and consider it the price of a bowl of beans 
We want to always value the cross, the empty tomb, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the promises of God, the fellowship of the saints, and the hope of eternity. And keep the holy things holy and not confuse them with worldly things or carnal things. For God is holy and he's teaching us holiness. Beware of the bowl of beans. Beware of losing the birthright and selling the birthright and selling for less and cheapening those glorious things of God in our life. Does that make sense? Amen.